Well, thanks for those who prayed that I'd sleep. I did sleep, although I woke to the dulcet tones of John Wright telling me he would take me home at 11 o'clock last night, which was, <laughs> which was mystical. I, I said, Lord, are you speaking to me? He said, no. I said, okay, then that's just, just got the message. I've, I feel rather traumatized this morning. I had a very, a very painful experience at breakfast this morning with John and Ellie Mumford. Not because I was with them, they were, they were present, but this lovely young lady in the hotel came and said, what do you want for breakfast? I said, two bits of bacon and two eggs, please. So she just stared at me. And uh, Ellie said, I think she wants to know how you want your eggs done. I said, oh, I said, a uh, bit runny, out of the shell. Um, <laughs> so Ellie said, no, what sort of eggs? I went, birds ones? Um, she said, no. No. I said, oh, fried, yeah. I mean, it wasn't that complicated, was it? Hands up if you think that if I say two slices of bacon and two eggs, I want boiled eggs. Anyone think boiled eggs? <laughs> Anyone think poached egg? I mean, come on, there are rules to eating, yeah. You, hands up if you thought, he obviously means fried egg. Okay, so it's not just a West Country thing, it's just Nottingham. Just. Anyway, I just wanted to get that off my chest because it's been ticking me off. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, let's pray. Why am I putting my watch on? I'm just starting. Father, Father, we thank you for your presence. Thank you that you are here with us. We thank you that you are making yourself known. And we thank you, Lord, that for some, their lives will never be the same because of these few days here in Nottingham, in this place. We thank you that in this place, you are revealing your son to us, Lord, that you are pouring out your spirit upon us, that you're opening your word to us, that you're calling us out into ministry, that you're putting words in our hearts, new songs in our lips. We bless you, Lord. And we pray that you would continue and increase what you're doing. Father, we so thank you for the privilege of worshipping you. We love it. We thank you for our bands here this morning, last night preparing, and leading us into your presence. We thank you, Lord, that you come when we ask. And so we ask again, as we come to your word, please, Holy Spirit, who wrote it, open it to us, our eyes, our minds, our hearts. Open thy law that we might behold wondrous things. Did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? We pray, Holy Spirit, open them to us. And let us burn today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 13. We're looking again at a uh, a little parable and uh, you know I haven't always got on with the parables I confess uh, 
been teaching for a couple of decades, but I've sort of avoided them. They, they haven't really gripped me. Um, and I, I'm not sure why, but I think increasingly in our postmodern culture, the presenting of kingdom truths in terms of these, these images and these little um, sort of illustrations, these little gobbets, these sort of little depth charges uh, is the way to go. Uh, certainly in our culture where people are less and less used to a kind of logical and didactic presentation, the, 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 the presentation of truth through these means, I think, is so important to us. So we're in Matthew 13 and uh, verse 33. Jesus told them another parable. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Read that again. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. In Time magazine in 2009, they listed the most influential heroes and icons in the world, the top 100 heroes and icons. And uh, Tiger Woods then was ranked 14th. Quite what he'll be today, I don't know, but then 14th. And on being uh, afforded and accorded this honor, Tiger Woods said this, if you are given a chance to be a role model, I think you should always take it because you can influence a person's life in a positive light. And that's what I want to do. And we know that just a few months later, all those allegations of his addiction to drugs and sex and so on came up. And one wonders what sort of a role model he was and that he now is. Today's parable is all about influence. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and put in three measures, three sears of flour, till it was all leavened. I grew up in a very devout, godly Christian family that, was, that had come out of the exclusive brethren, but was still exclusive. Uh, the influence of exclusive brethren and strict and particular Baptists. And we really were the kind of ubermensch of the church, or so we thought. Um, I mean, I know that dance, you know, there are some sort of conservative evangelicals out there who think that they're, they're religious and tough, but we made them look like girl guides, to be honest. I mean... And... Uh, Part of that nonconformist, exclusive religious culture, a strong thread that went all the way through it was the paranoia or the neurosis of contamination. There was this sort of huge fear that if we got anywhere near the world or the flesh or the devil, that it would win. 
that it would taint us, mar us, corrupt us, conform us into its image. And therefore we were to pull away from, come out and be separate from them and, uh, and, and just come together with those who were faithful saints in holy huddle. Most people who claimed to be Christians weren't regarded as Christians and so you couldn't be in fellowship or partnership with any other churches. When you went on holiday, you had to have a special letter from your elder to go to a special secret church to their elder and give them the letter. Some of these exclusive churches didn't even have windows on because they didn't want anyone looking in and they didn't want anyone inside looking out lest they be tempted astray. And my dear and godly parents had been brought up in this and had inculcated this and instilled this in me and they they were paranoid about the bad influence that would come into my life and so they vetted everything you know what I watched and what I read and what I wore and who I hung out with and what I did and my leisure time and and so on the thing is that as St. Paul said that that which you ban that which you put a law against the flesh is incited to desire and the very things that my parents said, oh, don't you go there, no smoking, no drinking, no done, you know, no other king but Christ, that sort of thing. You, you then become very interested in those things. In fact, I think in the churches I grew up in, they preached more about and against sin than for God and holiness. But the flesh craves what the law forbids. And in my teenage years, I said, no, uh, thank you very much. You can keep your religion. I'm going to go and see what the world has to offer. And I really went for it, up to my neck in it. And it was only as a young adult that by the grace of God and the prayers of my family and others, I was brought back to Christ. But this fear of bad influence, I think they had the whole conception, or in large part, wrong. Now I'm a parent, I... I'm struggling not to repeat this on my own sons as they come into teenage years. It's funny how you become your parents. Recently, my oldest boy uh, is uh, just coming to 13 this month. He says, uh, I'm going out with my friend. And I, I just found myself, I, I listened to myself, I thought, I, I've become my father. I said, Who's your friend? He said, oh, you know, just someone from school. I said, yeah, but who from school? He said, oh, you know, John, what is his surname? You know, John Smith, one-syllable surname? What is... I know, it's the flesh. And you've all done it. Where does he live? What does his dad do for a living? I mean, I actually asked my son what my son's friend's dad did for a living. Because you think, what kind of an influence is this person going to be on my son? The theme for this morning is about influence. And two questions as we press through. I want you to hold one what is influencing you? What is the biggest influence in your life? And secondly, what are you influencing? What difference 
are you making in this world? What is influencing you? What is the biggest influence in your life? And secondly, what are you influencing? What difference are you making with your life? Is the biggest influence in your life the Lord? Is it the Spirit of God? Is it the power of God? Is it the presence of God? Is it the word of God? Is it the decrees of God? Is it the kingdom of God? Is the biggest influence in your life the Lord? Or is it the thousand advertisements that we see or hear every day, whether obviously or subliminally? What is most influencing you? And what are you most influencing? The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. And leaven is about influence. In the ancient world, leaven, or sour bread, technically, functioned much as yeast does today. And it gives off carbon dioxide, and you place it in the lump of dough, and uh, it reacts with it and gives off these air bubbles, and it changes this passive lump of water and flour into a lighter and larger loaf. In the ancient days, unlike modern-day yeast, it was actually a remainder from the leavened loaf that you'd eaten the day before that they kept back to put in and keep things going and react. Now, the Bible speaks about two sorts of leaven. Interestingly, here, as we'll see, Jesus is speaking about it positively. But normally, when the Bible speaks of leaven, it speaks about it negatively. So the first sort of leaven in Scripture we read about is, if you like, forbidden leaven. It generally has this negative connotation in Jewish thought and Jewish life. In their haste to escape from Egypt, the Israelites didn't have enough time to put the leaven in their bread, as we read in Exodus chapter 12, and, uh, and they sort of ran away from Egypt, uh, led by the Lord, with unleavened bread. And ever thereafter, they celebrated the Exodus by having a feast of unleavened bread, where they swept away all the leaven in their house and didn't put it in their bread. Because leaven symbolized Egypt. It symbolized the world, the flesh, the devil, and sin. And so in the Old Testament, we read there there was no leaven in the showbread that was always offered before the Lord in the Holy Temple. There was no leaven to be added to any of the offerings. Jesus himself and Paul warned against Leaven, the leaven of sin. Jesus warned against the leaven of the Pharisees. Paul warned against the legalism in the church of uh, Galatia and the license, the immorality in the church of Corinth and he called both leaven that leavens the whole lump. And so it became, if you like, a metaphor for sin. It had a negative connotation. And Jesus is wanting us to hold this. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Immediately the register in their mind for leaven is the leaven of sin. So he's he's saying something quite shocking. He's playing with words so they'll remember it. Jesus wants them to hold this idea of the negative influence of leaven. Okay, But then he introduces this idea of the positive influence of leaven. And so we come from forbidden leaven to heaven's leaven. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Ooh, we've always thought leaven was sin. No, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It works in the same way. The question is, which one is going to work in your life? 
Are you going to have the leaven of sin working in your life? The leaven of Egypt? The leaven of the flesh? The leaven of the demonic? Is that what's going to be influencing you? Or is it going to be heaven's leaven? You've got a choice. Which is it going to be? It's an either or. You can't have both. Which? He says, like a woman who took three measures of flour and hid it in it until it was all leavened. Let's just tease that open a bit. This is one of Jesus' amusing exaggerations. He says in the Greek, three measures of flour. That's about 30 pounds worth of flour. Every day, uh, a Jewish mum would make enough bread for the family. Just make you know, three or four loaves. But instead, he says three measures, 30 pounds of flour. It's like 40, 50 loaves, enough for 400 people. This is crazy already. People are interested. They're saying, that's nuts. But he's got their attention. Preachers, you've got to get people's attention. You know, they're not going to forget this one. They're going to remember it and write it in scripture. It was memorable. Most of our sermons are forgotten. They're not memorable. And the Holy Spirit doesn't decree that they should be put in the book. But that's another point. But I thought I'd put that in there for the conservatives. <laughs> the fact is, no woman ever made that much flour. It took that much flour and made that much bread. But Jesus is making a point. He's not, he's not making bread, he's making a point. And the point is this. That a little bit can go a long way. That a little bit of leaven can permeate not just four loaves for the family for the day but enough for 400 people and it can leaven it can influence it can transform it can permeate the whole lot no matter how much dough water and flour you've got no matter how large the society this is the point of this parable a little goes a long way the little goes a long way when God's behind a little 120 disciples at Pentecost Two billion Christians today. Little goes a long way. Fastest growing religion we heard yesterday from Rick. Still the fastest growing religion in the world today. A third of the world Christian today. 120. Over two billion. Before the Lord Jesus returns, my hope according to scripture is that the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. It's not coming back to a skinny little bride. She's going to be plump. She's a big one. And she's magnificent. And she'll be glorious. She'll fill the earth. What is the leaven of heaven? Well, essentially, here's my definition. It's God in the mix. It's God in the mix. It's God there. It's God right in there. It's God at work. The leaven of heaven is the bread of life in the life of bread. The life of bread in the bread of life. It is the active, permeating, transforming presence of the king. It is his rule and reign backed by his presence. It is his word. It is his breath, his truth. It is his love. It is his welcome, his holiness, his justice. It's all the things and all the predicates that are attached to everything he said about the kingdom. 
And all those things he wants all on the inside in order to transform. Note that the text says that she hid it in it. She hid it. She didn't hide away from it. A lot of Christians, and certainly that which I grew up in, hide away from the world. But we're to hide ourselves in the world. The thing about Christ and his holiness was not that he withdrew from sinners, was that he advanced towards them. The Pharisees withdrew from sinners. In fact, their criticism of Christ was, look, he eats with tax collectors and sinners. But the point is you've got to be in it to win it. They were making no difference whatsoever, the Pharisees. Standing at a distance, washing their hands, saying the prayers. And Jesus advances towards them to transform them. There's the leper. The rabbi said, you can stone a leper to keep a leper away from you. Jesus comes and touches a leper. He touched the leper and healed him. In it, hidden in it. The leaven is not superficially acquainted with the dough. It's got to be in it in order to colonize the lump. Leaven cannot work its wonders from without. It must get stuck in. It can't throw good ideas or good words at the lump. It's got to be in it. And just by being in it and being who, what it is, it does its work. The kingdom of heaven works from the inside out. To work, it must get on the inside. Are you with me? I'm going to apply this in a minute in three ways, but I'm just laying the ground. So true holiness, true influence, must be a movement towards culture. It must be a movement towards the sinner. It must encounter, it must engage, it must be in the arena. And for so much of religion throughout its history, there has been this strange pietistic withdrawal. Whether it's a withdrawal into monasticism and hiding away in the caves and praying. Nice for them. You know, you, your scorpions and the Lord, great. But what are you doing in the desert? There's no one there. The withdrawal to that monastic life, and I don't wish to offend, but it's what I believe and it is offensive. We're not called to it. Maybe occasionally and momentarily to seek God, to get right with God. But then we're to advance up on the mountain. Jesus is beatified he is glorified he is manifested in his they see him as he really is the glorified one the eternal word of God and Peter James and John said it's absolutely brilliant let's build a booth build a booth there were good theological reasons why he thought he should do that because they believed the Messiah would come at the feast of tabernacles and so on but Let's build a booth. No, let's not build a booth. Let's go and deliver the demonized. We've got to get off the mountain and back down into the valley to deliver the demonized. Because the disciples are down there and they're trying, but they're not managing. It would be nice to always be up there in the glory place, but we've got to get down in the gritty place. That's why we can't always be in conferences. Some people spend their lives in conferences and, and it to no avail. 
Because what they get here does no good out there because they always come back here for another. It's just constant conference. As was said last night by Mary, we're filled in order to spill. We, become, we are blessed to be a blessing. The great mandate to Adam was to subdue the earth, not Eden, not just the garden. Abraham is to be a blessing to the nations, not just the middle of nowhere in the Middle, of East, in the middle East. God is always wanting to take us from that particular and make it general. You cannot leaven a life or a society when the leaven is not in the midst. One of the things I love about the vineyard is that they do get this. So I know I'm just reminding of you what is part of your very DNA. But there are some of us who just slide back into religious culture and become introspective and inward looking and church focused. And all the while we need to be jogged. We have to be in society. We've got to be in it to win it. God has got to be in the mix. He's got to be in the mix of me, me in the church, the church in the world. I was challenged at the general election last year. I hadn't voted for a decade. I hadn't. And why hadn't I voted? I'd, I'd actually, well, there were two reasons. One, I just thought, politics, whatever. I bored with it, and I didn't trust them, I guess. I just thought, it's just pragmatism and whatever. The other reason was, I think a theological reason, and I'd come to construct a certain theology that just, that just sort of abdicated me from any responsibility in society and voting. I just worked myself to it. And one day, the Lord told me off. And I really wasn't, you know, I don't appreciate that kind of thing, but okay, Lord, all right. Here's, a, here's an opportunity for influence under God, prayerfully, to make a difference. And as a result of that, I voted. I made a comment about it somewhere. It was written up in some paper. I've been invited to the House of Lords for a cup of tea. You know, I know the Mumfords, people in the House of Lords. I mean, it's just fantastic. But no, not the last influence. I'm, what I'm saying is influence. What are we doing? What difference are we making? What is influencing us? What are we influencing? Jesus says, till it is all leavened. He's got hope and a vision and an anticipation and an expectation. It'll really make a difference. There's optimism here. It will influence it all. I believe, and this again is a theological step aside, that the Lord is delaying his return. Because he does not desire to see any perish, but all that all might come to a saving knowledge of him. And he delays his return, even though evil advances, because he wants the church to influence. He just wants there to be more people in heaven with him. He just wants a bigger party. Get some more. Go out into the highways and byways. We want more. Just come back now, Lord Jesus. No, I'm, I don't want to come back yet. You're not ready for me, a bride prepared, and I want more. She's got to be plumper. And she's got to be whiter. The little leaven can colonize the whole lump. Jesus is thinking big. In the parable of the sower, we're going to look at maybe tomorrow. He talks about an influence of 100, then 60, then 30. He starts with the highest number. 
We often do the numbers, 30, 60, 100. Jesus says 100. Let's start high. We'll work start with 100. Mustard seed becomes a great tree. A little leaven can permeate the whole of the dough. Every part of society may be changed and transformed and benefited from the leaven of heaven. Okay, well, let's just boil this down a bit and, and seek to apply it. She sa it says that she had three measures of flour, and I want to apply this uh, with three points, if you like, three spheres of influence where this leaven of heaven, the kingdom as leaven, the kingdom of heaven as leaven can influence. And the first is this, that heaven's leaven must influence me and you personally. It starts with us. It starts with you and me. Before we can think about preaching and pontificating and out there with society, it's got to influence me. I am no good to the church and the church is no good to the world until God has been good at work in me. The leaven of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, must influence me and you first. The initial work of the leaven of heaven is to affect my salvation. The ongoing work of the leaven of heaven is my sanctification, conforming me into the likeness of Christ, and my mission. Christ was the personification of the heaven-leavened man. And the leaven of heaven is seen when Christ is seen in me. I am not leavened if I don't look like the Lord. When we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we mustn't just be thinking out there. First and foremost, we must say, in here, in me. I am under obligation. The text speaks to me. The text is about me. The text arrests me. The text must transform me before I can be any good out there. When I was a young Christian, all I longed for was more of the power of God. And that was a good desire. And it is one, I think, that one conforms to Scripture. And we can trace through Paul's writings in his own life, even at the end of his life. He's in jail. He's chained up. He says, I want to know Christ. Right to the Philippians. You know, power of the resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being made like him in death, that somehow I may attain to the resurrection of the dead, not that I have already got it or already been made perfect, but, and so on. I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. Even at the end of his life, Paul is wanting more. We've got to want more. The first book I wrote was about this theme, more, more of God, more of his power, more of his presence, more of his anointing, more of his equipping, more of his gifting, more of his voice, more unction, more of him in my life. But I was thinking mainly in terms of ministry. That God would anoint me for ministry. I wasn't thinking so much about character. And the longer I've been a Christian... And the more I have seen anointed men and women of God who God in his grace has bestowed charisms but lack character, I think, dear God, the church, she is muddy and messed up. Where is the character? Where is the conformity to Christ? 
The church in Corinth, we are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I think verse 4, something like that, says they lack no spiritual gift. And yet in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, he encourages the church who lack no spiritual gift and who are messing up with the spiritual gifts, not to stop it, chill out, let's just dial down, but to ask for more. Eagerly desire that you may prophesy. Eagerly desire the gifts of the Spirit. The Greek word I think is zelute. It means zeal. Burn. So there is a biblical basis to want more of the Spirit. And we should always want more. We need more. And there always is more. But the more I've been, and the longer I've been a Christian, the more I've been in ministry and alongside ministers, I just think, God, I've been a Christian 25 years Am I still wrestling with that issue? That minister, you know, how many more ministers do I have to hear falling through immorality or indecency or ripping off the church? How, how many more? What we need on the one hand is the power of God, but we also need the character of God in our life. We need the charisms and the character. And so what I want to say here is that that leaven must influence me to be like him. Your kingdom come, your will be done in me as it is in heaven. And so increasingly this desire for holiness has become an important one to me even though the evidence of it seems to be lacking the more I pursue it. I want more of him. He says, I want more of you. I want more of him. He says, I want you to be more like me. What would our speech sound like if we were more like him? What would our conversations be like? What would our thoughts be like if we were more like him, if we were more leavened? What would our mind look like? What would our time spent look like? What would our checkbook stubs look like? What would our relationships look like? It isn't enough, saints, just to ask for more power. Ask for that every day. But also ask to be more like him. Leaven me, O oh God. Leaven me, O oh God. Search me and try me and see if there's any unrighteous way in me. The Spirit of God is not just there for our entertainment. He's certainly not there for that. He's not just there for our employment to put us to work. He is there for our enjoyment, to shed his love abroad in our hearts, but he is there to transform us from one degree of glory into the likeness of Christ. And though I speak and ra I'm rather dismissive of my upbringing and that emphasis on piety that sort of puritanism, that withdrawal, that pursuit of personal holiness. And, what, and, and I can often diss that and embrace the charismatic. I also miss some of those things. Holiness. We need a holy church. My son, a little while ago, we were having dinner with a friend and he was over and he said to my youngest son, Nathaniel, who's 10... He said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Nathaniel said, a man. <laughs> it's logical, it follows. 
So my, uh, my friend, Big Frank, said, uh, what sort of a man? He said, I want to be a man like my dad. Now, do you know what my instant reaction was? Do you know what came out of my mouth? He said, son, you better do better than that. You better aim higher than that. You've got to reach further than your dad. It was the wrong thing to say. <laughs> but Because what a beautiful thing. For your son. What a beautiful thing. I, when he's 14, will he say the same? I hate you. I don't want to be anything like you. <laughs> I'll never be a vicar. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I want my son to be better, a better man than I am. I want him to be more like Christ. I want him to be more anointed. If I can do anything, in my life, first and foremost, it's to make, enable my sons to be better men than I am. And when the husbands, better husbands, when the fathers, better fathers, better friends, better employees, better servants of God. I spoke recently to a builder, a friend of mine, and... Uh, he told me that he'd had the worst year in, in his profession that he had known for many years. I said, why? He said, I just got ripped off left, right, and center. People wouldn't pay their bills. Those who would withheld some of the money. They just were, they messed me around. They pushed and pushed and pushed to whittle down the cost in order to get the cheapest job done uh, and expect the most from me for the least. And I said, oh, I'm really sorry. He said, every client was a Christian. Every client a Christian. Every client ripped me off. Every client put me under the cosh. Expected more for less because I was a Christian. Dear God. He said, there they are. And I mean, he was, you know, he's really struggling. He just said, and he said, I'm in one family they really just ground me down and whittling at the cost, but wanting more. And he said, actually, he said, effectively did the job for nothing because they were pleading poverty and then they turned up with a brand new Saab. And he says, I think to myself, church, eh? It's got to influence us. And what does that influence look like? It looks like the best employer. We're the people who give bonuses. We're the people who, when that tradesperson leaves, they say, wow, I want to work for people like you again. You're amazing. Every job he did that year, he was ripped off, he was nearly bankrupted, and everyone was a Christian. I was asked for pastoral advice recently from someone who told me that a long-term friend of theirs had come to visit them. They, they, they were a member of the, the university and a friend had come on holiday and spent one night with them. And then his friend said to him, they'd grown up together, they were in church together, they'd been involved in ministry together. The guy was now a wealthy uh, professional medic. 
earning a lot of money in North America, and said to him, listen, if you get a bit of the university college headed paper and write on it that I was invited to stay with you, I can claim the whole price of the flight back. My mates came to see me and said, what do I do? He's a friend, he's a Christian, been a minister, I grew up together. I said, did you invite him? He went, no, he came on holiday to London and dropped over for a day in Oxford. I said, well, you tell him exactly what you think of him. A Christian in the church acting like that. Kyrie eleison. Nietzsche said, what do we call Nietzsche? Nitzi. It's got to be done. Because <laughs> a lot of people look up to him, and he is responsible for the Second World War in large part ideologically. <laughs> I'm prepared to justify that at any point. He was the primary ideological, intellectual influence on Nazism. And his whole theory of the Ubermensch, the strong man rising up, underpinned the whole of Nazism. Hitler made a pilgrimage to Nietzsche's um, memorial and um, museum. His uh, younger sister, Nietzsche's younger sister, gave Hitler Nietzsche's walking stick that Hitler then used. There's some, anyway, we don't need to go into that, but I spent a year studying it and I've got opinions. <laughs> but let's get back to scripture. On this point, Nietzsche's right. He says, you'll have to look more redeemed if I'm to believe your redeemer. Nietzsche's father was the chaplain to the king of Germany. Nietzsche was brought up in a devout religious Lutheran house. But by the time he gets to university, he says, stuffed a lot of you. What experience of Christianity did he have that turned him to be so, I mean, he was, a, he was almost a genius. I mean, he was a remarkable man. To be so dark and then so darkly used. What turned him? You'll have to look more redeemed if I'm to believe in your redeemer. A Hindu once said to Billy Graham, I would become a Christian if I could find one. Gandhi once when he was a student reading law in London in the late 30s, Gandhi was enamored by Christ. He was wooed by Christ. He went to a church. He turns up. He says to the deacon, I want to meet the pastor because I want him to talk to me about Jesus Christ. The pastor looked at him with disdain, this Indian from the empire, and said, go to your own people. Gandhi walked out of there, turned his back on Christ as an, as an option, then decided that the way to go was the way that he went, and it resulted, obviously, as we know, despite his best efforts, what a dear man, in the division of India, Pakistan, and millions of deaths and trouble ever since. Could things have been different? Could world politics have been different? If the deacon had said, Welcome, my brother. Come on in. You sit here. Can I get you a cup of tea? Let me serve you. The pastor's on his way. And if you've been introduced to Christ. 
The Spirit of God has got to influence us. The kingdom of God has got to influence us. It's got to change us. We need more of him on the inside, more of God in the mix. Too many professing Christians today are not practicing Christians. Too many preaching Christians are not practicing Christians. And we're the leaders in our churches. We've got to take the lead. It says, I think in um, Judges 5.2, around there, might be 6.2, but I think it's 5.2, it says, leaders lead and the people freely offer themselves. Leaders lead and the people freely offer themselves. When we lead, not just in, I'm in charge, you do what I say, but when we lead in walking with God, in looking more like 